0: It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. This summer, President Trump sang praises about the country's economy, tweeting it was the greatest economy in the history of America. But how much of the upswing can be attributed to White House policies? Former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers says very little. Many factors are contributing to the positive picture.
1: If you look at business confidence in Europe, if you look at business confidence in Japan, if you look at business confidence in China, you will find it is way up, which really demonstrates that business confidence is determined by a lot of things other than who the President of the United States is.
0: Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership in the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held in Aspen, Colorado at the Aspen Ideas Festival. As a columnist for the Financial Times, Larry Summers has penned his disagreement with the current direction of U.S. economic policy, particularly in the areas of trade, tariffs, and the rethinking of international agreements on commerce and investment. At the Aspen Ideas Festival in June, he spoke with journalist Gillian Tett about what he would do differently and the tactics that should be taken to ensure economic growth. Here's Gillian Tett.
2: I'd like to start by asking you to comment a bit about the current situation in America, because you have been very vocal in your criticism of Donald Trump's policies, both in the pages of the FT and elsewhere. You've talked a lot about the idea of secular stagnation, said that we are currently in a phase of secular stagnation. And yet, if you look at what's happening right now in the American economy, it looks anything but stagnant. We've got unemployment falling to a multi-decade low. We've got inflation under control. We've got pretty strong GDP growth. Even corporate investment is coming back. So, do you think it's time to turn around and say, actually, I was wrong? These Trumpian economic policies seem to be working.
1: We economists are not given to that. Um,
2: <laughs> well, that's always the first time.
1: Let me take, You're among friends here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I don't. Um, let me. Uh, let me. I think you really ask two two separate questions, and let me answer them separately. Uh, the first was. So you were off talking about secular stagnation and the economy's booming, weren't you out to lunch? And the second is you're dumping all over Trump and he seems to be succeeding. Mm -hmm. And so let me take those. Let's
2: take the second one first, okay? And then we'll get into the academic question of secular stagnation. Okay,
1: let's take the second one. Uh, So uh, was
2: Trump right?
1: No, he's not, I don't think he's been right about uh, much of anything. First thing to understand is First thing to understand is that policy affects the economy with a 12 to 18 month lag. So, roughly, nothing that's happened so far has been substantially affected by anything that he has that uh, he has done. It's really been the legacy of nothing? what came before. Very little. I mean, policy. I mean, that's what the evidence is. We should is. take a vote away the has, has, to
2: agree to that. Policy money, has yeah. 12 to.
1: Eight, I mean, the culture, the attitude, lots of things like. That, there's perhaps been some effect on markets because markets look forward, but if you look at what's happened in the GDP statistics and the clearest evidence of that is if you actually look at the, and I'm three months out of date on this to be fair, but if you look at um, the positive surprise relative to the IMF forecasts in the fall of 2016, Europe has surprised more positively than the United States has. Japan has surprised more positively than the United States has. China has surprised more positively than the United States has. So there has been a global updraft, and the rest of the world didn't elect Donald Trump as as president. So in terms of tracing... Uh, the uh, signal. I don't actually think uh, there's uh, very much to see that can be clear, that can be linked uh, to uh, the uh, Trump policies. Now, you know, maybe it'll be different in a year or two. I also think the things that are most dangerous, which are the increases in uncertainty associated with uh, the trade and international policies uh, more broadly, and the um, long-term consequences of a complete loss of reflection on government spending needs relative to its revenue capacity, those things you'd expect to play out over time and, uh, and and be harmful. So yes, have I been? Would, I, would my forecast a year ago have been for an economy as strong as the one we've seen? No, it wouldn't have been. But my error would have been, and the consensus's error, would have been larger for the world as a whole, would have been larger for all the major regions of the world, which makes the idea that it's somehow Donald Trump's unique policies um, less plausible.
2: But if you look, At charts of business confidence what you see is a very sharp upswing after the election if you talk to business leaders if you talk to some people in the room I expect all of the moves on deregulation on tax cuts that appears to have boosted confidence so how can you possibly say that none of the current upswing has got nothing to do with Donald Trump
1: well let me let me answer that in two ways the first is if you look at business confidence in Europe, if you look at business confidence in Japan, if you look at business confidence in China, you will find it is way up in all of those places, which really demonstrates that business confidence is determined by a lot of things other than who the President of the United, who the president of the United States uh, is, and that there's something basically after a long difficult period the global policy ultimately having an effect in the global economy coming together. That's the first answer. The second answer is, let me let you in on a little secret. If you give people money, they usually like you. (laughs) And if you give people money, they tend to feel happier. And so we have conferred the biggest windfall on corporate America in the last 40 years. And corporate America is pleased that it received that and feels good about having received that. The question is, has that translated into some substantial increase in investment beyond what you would have expected after a protracted period of low interest rates and in a strengthening global economy? And there, it is very, very difficult uh, to make the case Uh, that there is some increase in investment that is substantially beyond what you would have seen. And I didn't think that the test of the success of a set of economic policies was to be judged by confidence surveys administered to Fortune 500 CEOs. (laughs) If that were the objective, then a different set of policies um, would be desirable. No, look, I want to be fair. Uh, let, me, let me be fair here. Um, and I, I actually really do want to be fair. Um, I argued when I was in the administration, and I, I think that history will remember uh, Barack Obama and the Obama administration in a, very fav- in a very favorable way, probably more favorable than we see it today. <laughs> that said, I used to warn constantly to the point where people got sick of hearing me say it that business confidence is a very cheap form of stimulus. And I think that the Obama administration paid too little attention to doing some things that would have enhanced uh, business confidence. Well, they
2: were were fairly anti-business in their rhetoric. Well, you know. I mean, you know, let's call a spade a spade. They were not very business friendly. And business was very frustrated, and I think a lot of what happened.
1: Many businesses. And I say,
2: I say. I think, as a journalist, you know, we're also at fault here because, you know, there were many reasons why questions why business confidence surged after after the election result, and I think part of it was a gradual pent-up frustration on the part of business. But frankly, because it had been building up over many years, very slowly and stealthily, you know, I think many journalists hadn't actually picked up on the level of frustration at the administration's seemingly anti-business stance?
1: Again, I think we are anchoring economic performance far more in the psychological state of business than any set of empirical studies of investment would suggest. I think on the question of how much is Trump and how much is recovery I think it's not so easy to I think it's not so easy to know. You know, it's very interesting if you looked at uh, without making this uh, technical, if you looked at the behavior of financial markets before the election, what they were signaling was that markets thought that Trump's election would be bad for the economy. So coming into the election, it was very clear looking at the pattern of options prices. That the market expectation was that Trump would be bad for the economy. Subsequently, obviously, things uh, turned. But how much of that turn was related to things he said and did? How much of that turn was related to the general global trend? I do think you have to put it right. uh, in uh, the global in the global context. You know, I think the question of how you address Uh, business confidence is important. Look, uh, the power industry was really made quite unconfident by Barack Obama's clean power plants. On the other hand, people who thought it was important that the planet be intact 40 years from now were glad to see the United States taking significant steps with respect to uh, climate. The fossil fuel industries, the coal industry, is euphoric now in a way that it was miserable before. On the other hand, a lot of people are gonna die because of the use of uh, coal. The, uh, The, it is certainly true that a lot of businesses are much happier and A lot of people who are living on the edge feel much more insecure about their economic future because of what's happening uh, to the social safety net and what is in prospect. So I I think when you judge confidence, I at least think that confidence in the future of a large number of Americans is uh, very important.
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Today's speaker, Larry Summers, has an extensive resume. He was chief economist of the World Bank, director of the National Economic Council for the Obama administration, and as we mentioned at the top of the show, served as U.S. Treasury Secretary under President Clinton. He's speaking with Jillian Tett, the U.S. managing editor of the Financial Times. She also writes weekly columns for the Times. They spoke on June 29th at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Let's get back to their conversation. Here's Gillian Tett.
2: We're now in the ninth year of economic recovery, which is very, very unusual in historical terms, because normally we do not have recoveries last this long. Do you foresee a recession looming, and or are you concerned that as America piles up more and more debt, there could be some kind of debt crisis in the next couple of years? I mean, how soon would you expect to see a crunch or expect to see payback time from these policies?
1: So economic research actually says something that's a little counterintuitive. Um, The older people get, the more likely they are to die in the next year. It's It's just an unfortunate fact that we all have to live with. That's not true of recoveries it does not look like a recovery in its seventh year is more likely to end than a recovery in its third year. And so I would say the right judgment for the American economy is that the odds are about 20% a year, perhaps 25% a year, that the economy will go into recession if it's not currently uh, in recession. And you can put some puts and takes in various directions on that, but I think it's 20 or 25% a year that we will go into recession. I think the economy is healthy in in the sense that a person is fundamentally healthy if they don't yet know what they're gonna die of. By that that standard, this expansion is healthy. But if it ran three more years, I'd be a bit surprised. If it ran five more years, I would be uh, very uh, surprised. And I think you are starting to see signs of excess in asset prices in the erosion of uh credit standards loans are starting to be available for the asking uh in the way that they were in 2006 and 2007 and by the way that's one of the things that's contributing to the general corporate uh, euphoria yeah. you know there are these things that bonds uh, Covenants, various kinds of restrictions where you get in trouble and the, the bondholder gets to start arguing, gets to start interfering in your life if your cash flows go down and the like. Those things were omnipresent in loans that were issued two or three years ago right. and are slipping away almost completely today. Well, that makes it terrific to be running a company, but it is a bit of a historical pattern we've seen. Uh, in the past. And so I am uh, concerned about overly easy financial conditions. And of all moments to be reducing regulation on the financial sector, of all moments to be scaling back capital requirements uh, on banks, this seems like a particularly poor moment to be be moving in that direction.
2: Could there be another financial crisis or crunch like we saw in 2007 and
1: 8? I, I think you'd have to say that the odds on an event of the magnitude of 2007, which is a kind of twice a 2008, which is a twice a century event, you'd have to say that was way odds off, but not inconceivable. But could you have a set of financial dislocations and economic problems like happened after the internet bubble, or like happened after the real estate bubble in uh, 1990. Yeah, I think that's a good chance, Uh, probably less than 50-50, but a good chance to happen in the next three or four years.
2: Right, and how do you assess Powell's tenure at the Fed so far? I mean, would you agree with his policy of steadily raising rates?
1: So, first of all this is a moment for the old professor's joke always and this time it's more right than usual which is I'd give him a grade of incomplete i mean he's only been there six he's only been there six months and i think he's done fine uh very well in the six months that he's been there i actually have been if you, if you characterize the policy the way he the way you characterized it jillian i wouldn't much like it because i would worry that it was gonna point towards excessive hawkishness and uh, that that might undermine uh, the economy. You know, the fundamental problem of the Fed is it's like uh, trying to get in a shower when the pipes are set so that when you turn the knobs, the water only changes temperature with a 20-second lag. It's really easy to scald yourself. And that's the Fed's problem. The Fed's problem is that policy operates with a substantial lag, so you want to hit the brakes, you want to hit the brakes, you want to hit the brakes, and you keep hitting the brakes, and then the lags kick in, and then you sent the economy into recession. That, I think, is a big danger. What has actually encouraged me is that, to a, more than I would have expected him to, Jay has um, made clear that our 2% inflation target is symmetric. That is that he's prepared to accept more than 2% inflation for a time in order to avoid excessive tightening. He has recognized that the Phillips curve is more in the nature of a conjecture than in the nature of an iron law. And he's put stress on studying the actual economic uh, data on inflation in calibrating uh, the tightening. So I think he has shown a lot of awareness of uh, the risks. The Fed has allowed its consensus forecast for the first time in a long time of long-run inflation to creep slightly above uh, 2%. Above 2%. So I think um, that he is pursuing a carefully calibrated, actually quite dovish uh, policy, right. and I think that's <laughs> appropriate. And I sort of apl- I applaud that uh, that uh, a- that approach. Right. But I think the risks, as the Tonya question suggests, are on the side of tightening too fast.
2: Right. Well, that might be an incomplete grade, but it certainly sounds like an A minus or a B, B plus.
1: Um, nowadays, nowadays, Julian, the most common grade in the Ivy League is A, and so <laughs> we have enough. Whether or not we've got product price inflation, we've surely got grade inflation, and so, so I give, give him I give, him, I'd give a. him a higher grade than that A minus B plus.
2: <laughs> okay. So he gets an A so far provisionally, but. Um, I'm going to turn to the rest of the world in a moment, particularly ask about China and trade. But before I do, just sticking with America for a moment, given that Donald Trump's tenure has been associated with such a strong recovery, even if you don't accept that it's actually in any way there's any causality there, how on earth do you think the Democrats can forge a platform for economic policies? that are going to be attractive at the moment. I mean, if you were setting economic policy right now, what tack would you take? Would you try and be more pro-business? Would you, you know, accept the idea of a minimum wage, of universal income, of free student tuition? Do you think that there needs to be much more of a centrist, pro-market policy? I mean, how can you forge an alternative to the Trump policy platform right now that would be attractive for the voters?
1: I'm an economist, not a politician, but what I would be doing is stressing the importance of renewing the economy for the benefit of all Americans. That would mean instead of a large program of tax cuts for a few, a large program of infrastructure investment for the many, that would mean doing it in a way that combined Democrat and Republican ideas, Democrat ideas that we need much more public investment, Republican ideas that when it takes five years to build a little bridge, that's a crazy way uh, to do it, that it really is a quite apart from the fact that we need more money, the fact that the 2nd Avenue subway cost five times as much per kilometer as the subway in that paragon of efficiency, France. Um, The Paris uh, (laughs) underground tells you that something's wrong and it's not just inadequate allocation of money. Infrastructure uh, first. Second, I would go after in an aggressive way what economists uh, call rents. Some of that is about more aggressive uh, antitrust uh, policy, where that's appropriate, some of that is about uh, promoting uh, comp- promoting competition in uh, every uh, in every sphere. Part of the re- you know it's very interesting to actually look at healthcare, and this kind of came as a surprise to me. Um, If you ask why does healthcare cost 18% of GDP in the United States and 10% of GDP in the rest of the world, it's not because we have more knee surgeries and because we do more heroic medicine in the three months before people die and because we have more heart procedures or consume more drugs. It's very little of that. It's because we pay more for a pill, more for an operation, more for a day in a hospital room more for a well-baby checkup. And that's got to do with the fact that we have allowed a large amount of collusion with a small amount of countervailing power. We have allowed across the country hospitals to merge with hospitals to the point where there's one dominant provider of healthcare in a large number of American cities. Now there's one dominant provider of healthcare in a lot of countries, but then there's one dominant purchaser that uses its leverage to hold down the price. Only in America do we have multiple competitive purchasers and substantial monopoly suppliers, and we are all poorer as a consequence of that. That is an example. You can look at many different sectors where there's room uh, to be more pro-competitive, and that's the second, that's the second thing uh, that I think we need as a country Uh, to take on. Third, we need to invest in an adequate way uh, in our uh, future. You all have heard in the course of this festival about the remarkable potential of things that are happening in the life sciences to extend uh, life and to improve uh, life. Jim Watson won the Nobel Prize for discovering DNA. He did that research when he was 27 years old. In the United States today, because of budget cuts, the average investigator when they get their first grant on their own from the National Institute of Health is 42. Mozart had been dead for nine years at at that age. It is a crazy way to foster Creativity and it happens because we have inadequate resources and we keep the existing guys uh, going. You can say similar things about uh, education. Look, uh, it is going to be the case that as long as we pay teachers inadequately, we are going to get inadequate teachers. The average person entering uh, teaching right now um, got 900 combined on their verbal and math SAT. Those people are going to have a difficult time preparing people to compete with Alibaba. They just are. It's a fact. Right. And if we want to fix that, we are going to have to reward teachers in a more satisfactory way if we want to get the most talented people in the society to do some of the most important work in the society. Right. At the same time, when you have absolute job security, no accountability, limited measurement of uh, performance, and an ethic, which is that the system is run for the convenience of the providers rather than for the benefit of the students, you don't get it right. And so I think if we focus on the right public investments, We focus on the substantial share of profits and inequality that results from uh, rent seeking. And we renew the infrastructure of uh, this country. There's nothing wrong with American workers and there's nothing wrong with American entrepreneurs. And we can do much better in a way that is much more inclusive than uh, the way we have run things. And I think people can and will uh, come to see that if they are led uh, in uh, that direction.
0: And I think it's awfully
1: important, especially given what is happening in uh, China. I mean, leave aside all the geopolitical stuff, leave aside all the human rights uh, kind of issues. When I was Treasury Secretary in the 90s, I always used to say that the reason I had great confidence in America's future was that we were the only country in the world where you could raise your first $100 million before you buy, bought your first suit. And that was true, when I said it in the 1990s it is no longer true today. Of the 50 largest unicorns, privately held venture companies, as of right now, 17 of them are in the United States, 26 of them are in China, and the other seven are around the world, zero in Europe. And that is a challenge that we have to meet. I think if we draw energy from the challenge we have to meet from China and the need to include everyone uh, in our prosperity, it is a much sounder approach than trying to protect the industries of the 1950s, like steel, at a time when we have fewer steel workers in the United States than we have manicurists. <laughs> Let me say that again. Fewer steel workers than manicurists. And at a time when there are 60 times as many people working in industries that lose competitiveness from high-priced steel as there are who are working uh, in steel.
2: So what what about the president's argument, though, that China has been stealing a march on America in high tech by stealing ideas, technologies, by the lack of IP protection? I mean, I hear you on the steel point. Many economists would agree with you, many business people would agree with you, that acting in this way on things like steel does not make sense, and yet, what would you do about the fact that China has been effectively threatening the US IP?
1: So first of all, if you look at the things that actually, many of the things that actually feel most threatening, the kinds of things that Alibaba is uh, doing, the kinds of things that uh, Tencent are doing, Those are heavy Chinese investments in artificial intelligence and the like. That is what they are doing, not what they are stealing. Those are the sectors where uh, they are ahead. Of course there are issues of uh, IP, and if we approached those issues in a multilateral way through Uh, the WTO, we can uh, make progress um, in scaling back uh, those, scaling back. That is a problem. But if you ask what is the threat to America's technological leadership, it is not what's going to be stolen from General Motors. It is what's going to be forged by people who are in the lead. And if we want to catch up and compete, we are much better off worrying about our training program than their track shoes.
0: Aspen Ideas To Go covers a wide array of topics. One of our earlier episodes dove into artificial intelligence and how it's disrupting business. Bloomberg television anchor Eric Schatzker says everyone has a different view of the impacts of AI.
2: The consumer's perspective, how cool is this going to be? The at-risk worker's perspective, what's the dark and forbidding future perhaps that AI holds? The frontline coder's perspective, what are the boundaries of technology and how far can I push them?
0: Shatsker sits down with a panel of tech and business experts like Tim O'Reilly to discuss how AI will impact our lives and what business sectors might be most affected. Find the episode, How Artificial Intelligence Will Transform Industry, in your favorite podcast player. There's also a link in our show notes. Here's the rest of today's show. Jillian Tet.
2: So I'm going to turn to the audience for questions in just a moment, because I know there's a lot of people in the audience who probably have strong views. But before I do, I'd just like to ask, how worried are you about the threat that a trade war is going to undermine global growth?
1: I think it's psychological. If you actually add up all the tariffs and all the disruption, it's actually not that big in the grand scheme of things. I mean, here's, here's kind of a number. The day, the day Trump most vociferously threatened uh, tariffs. He was threatening 10% tariffs on $200 billion of goods. So that's $20 billion of tariffs. And if you trace through the incidence of those $20 billion of tariffs, some of it would be lower wages, some of it would be higher prices, and a bit of it would be lower profits. So maybe a third of it would be lower profits. That's $6 billion the stock market went down by $500 billion of value that day. So it's quite disproportionate to the immediate effect of the tariff policies. Now, can the whole thing spiral out of control? Can the whole thing create a ton of uncertainty that has a psychological effect that chills things? Yes, it can. So the answer is I'm apprehensive but I actually think the direct impact of the trade policies tend to be exaggerated. What I think is much more serious is what it means for a long-run global system, for the rest of the world no longer to rely, be able to rely on the United States. The idea that commitments made by one administration don't apply in the next administration. The idea that commitments made by an administration don't apply to itself a month later, creates enormous anxiety, and that anxiety causes people to behave in ways that are uh, destabilizing, whether it's localizing production and not engaging in supply chains, whether it's building up (laughs) one's own military forces because one can't rely on an American... uh, umbrella, it's the breakdown of international order, Mm. of which the way we're conducting economic diplomacy is a major example that worries me much more than the direct effects of even nutty tariff policies.
2: So it's back to that psychology issue again. Right, um, any questions? We've got hands already waving, okay? You've managed to provoke them into lots of comments or questions.
1: Mr. Summers, uh, you referenced earlier in the talk um, the Clean Power Plan and how in the short term it's going to benefit the energy sector, but that many people will die as a result. Um, as an alternative to command and control regulations for energy, I understand that you are a founding member of the Climate Leadership Council, an organization that Jillian interviewed last year here at the Aspen Ideas Festival with mm-hmm. Mark Tursik of the Nature Conservancy, uh, Nick Schultz of ExxonMobil on the same stage, and Ted Halstead, the founder. Could you please comment for those in the room and let them know if there is perhaps a market-based solution that could supersede performance-wise the command-and-control approach to dealing with this issue? Look, the right thing, the clean power plant approach is much better than nothing. It is much better than denial. But it's not the best thing. The best way to deal with um, global global climate change is to raise the price of the stuff you don't like. Because when you raise the price, you engage everybody's creative energy in figuring out how to use less, in figuring out how to find alternatives, in figuring out how to remove the stuff uh, from uh, the air. And so it's classic economics that the best approach is to tax things you don't like, rather than tax things you do like. And so if you step back from it, it's sort of crazy that we don't replace some of our taxes on work and savings with uh, taxes on fossil fuel uh, emissions. And that's the essence of the carbon dividend plan. And it's actually a rather, um, I'm a founding supporter, but not a creator, so I can brag on it. it it actually is a very effective synthesis. The elements are higher priced carbon, that's good, rebate the money equally to all Americans, so that's highly highly progressive and helping those who are least uh, well off. If you are putting a high price on carbon, then you can let the market figure out Um, whether it's gonna be solar power or whether it's gonna be electric cars or what it's gonna be. So no more government monitoring how intense the water can be in your shower and uh, all the things that we're now monitoring. Mm -hmm. And the fourth element is fairness internationally. So if we put this tax on and some other country doesn't, then we're not gonna let them sell carbon intensive goods here without making a payment at the border. So those are the four elements, and it is a plan that should command widespread support. When we have an administration that hasn't fully decided whether climate change is real, and that's sort of made up of the equivalent of tobacco scientists, I think it's gonna be a while before we get it. But when the time comes, And I'm somebody who believes that windows open in American politics and what all these kinds of efforts do is set things up so that they're ready to move when the window opens. And I suspect the window will open at some point uh, for something like this.
2: We have a question over here.
1: So in the current globalization that we have in um, our industry, do you think that there's any really good strategies for private industry in the United States to um, move forward with china which has the lead in digital and and technology right now what are what are your strategy ideas on that i tend to be skeptical of government driven um or externally advised strategies i tend to think that the better strategies are organic on uh a company by company basis, and I think there are companies that have forged successful uh, partnerships uh, with uh, China. I think we have to be very. I think we have to be very careful. I mean, one of the movements is now to uh, restrict Chinese investment in the United States, Chinese investment in U.S. companies. U.S. companies' ability to do deals with China because technology will be of the fear that technology will be exported. Well, those deals may work. We may succeed in building a big dam around all the ideas in America so that other people can't get them. That might work. Feels kind of implausible in a society as free as ours. And the alternative is what we will do is deny a ton of opportunities for productive and positive uh, collaboration. So I think we have to be very, very careful in the approaches we take. Obviously, there's some things where you need to restrict uh, ac- rest- restrict access, but I think we've got to be very, very careful because we may well deny substantial amounts of uh, positive uh, collaboration. A
2: Question back there and then in the front.
1: Uh, I was wondering if there's anything uh, positive
0: that you think has happened since Trump was elected related to the economy and changes that he's
1: kind of pushed through.
2: So anything you like from the Trump policies, is that right? Or anything positive that's happened that you approve of?
1: Look, I, I said that I thought that the Obama administration had paid insufficient attention to issues of business confidence and that paying a bit more attention to that was, I thought, something that was uh, probably desirable. I think there were excesses in uh, regulation and some of that is being scaled back. For example, I think it is too hard for a an innovative pharmaceutical that has the potential to save lives that has been clinically tested successfully in Europe, how much should we protect, because after all, we don't want more thalidomides, and how much should we allow uh, the drugs to come in, because after all, they're the last hope uh, for um, many uh, people. I think that balance has been shifted in a way that's probably appropriate over the the last months. And certainly the general success of our technology companies and the sense that uh, they are expanding, albeit with a need for more uh, controls, is uh, something uh, to be welcomed. You know, right. and the fact that Amazon is now going to be involved in dissemination and distribution of uh, pharmaceuticals, I would be very surprised if that doesn't mean lower price, more convenient access to pharmaceuticals right. for more Americans. And that's a good thing, and it's something that's happening in this period.
2: Um, I'm curious, is it your working assumption that President Trump has a second term? If you were no. a betting man, what would probability would you give to that right now?
1: Under 50, um, non, non-trivial, um, but under, uh, under, fi- under 50-50. Um, I think that, you know, people ride high until they don't. <laughs> and there was a moment when Joe McCarthy, seemed invincible, and people were cowering in fear, and he was doing many, many things that seemed to the precursors of the people in this room to be completely outrageous, but people were terrified, and they were following along, and then at a certain point, he overstepped, and it wasn't, and I guess I think there's a substantial chance uh, that uh, something like that will happen. So I think if you asked me uh, for odds, I would say the odds are 80%, not 100%, that he will be the Republican candidate for president in 2020. And I would say that if he is the candidate, the odds are slightly below 50-50 that he will win.
2: Well, I hope we can come back in three or four years' time and hold you to those odds and see what happened. Wait, 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 Jillian,
1: Jillian. The (laughs) nice thing about saying, if you take 80 times 50, it's 40. The the nice (laughs) thing about saying 40% is that you can't really be wrong.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But I, as someone who has to look at your columns, can say, can you please tighten the outro par, please, and tighten your conclusion. But just very briefly before we go, is there anyone on the Democrat side who you think currently embodies what you think should be the alternative platform, who you'd like to rally
1: around? I'm not going to get into personalities. I think there's a, a field of strong uh, candidates, and I would, I would, have no idea who it will be, but I kind of suspect that someone will emerge, um, I hope, with a message like the one I've talked about, I think there is a danger that extreme will beget extreme and that shrill will beget uh, shrill and uh, that the Democrats will respond in a way that is polarized in a different direction. And I think that would be unfortunate.
2: Right. Last question, um, I think.
1: Thank you so much for your comments. It's always uh, wonderful hear you. Um, I'm concerned about the, the, the deficit, $21 trillion or whatever it is. I, I loved your list of priorities, infrastructure and healthcare and whatever. How do we do both? I mean, how do we sort this out? Isn't it a little dangerous putting that much debt on top of a full, uh, full economy? I don't think, uh, I do not think the budget deficit is one of the four largest problems facing the United States uh, today. And I'll tell you why. Uh, First, I think we've got other deficits that are just as profound for the future. Any business knows that when you defer maintenance, it's the moral equivalent of borrowing money. And when you defer maintenance, And when you defer maintenance, I can tell you the costs compound a lot faster than the sub 2% average cost of American debt. When you underfund the civil service, when you underfund uh, pension uh, contributions, when you allow the basic infrastructure, I mean here both the hard and soft infrastructure of government to decay, that is borrowing from my children's generation just as surely as borrowing money is, that means that they are going to have to pay more in taxes or deal with more uh, problems. And that's where we've run up an even bigger deficit than we have in paper financial terms. That's the first thing I'd say. Second thing I'd say, and this goes to the more academic stuff about secular stagnation that, Jillian, about a that Jillian adroitly okay. blocked me from talking about. One minute. Um, yeah, I got it. Um, is, that there is a kind of market signal. It's a remarkable thing that we've got 4%, sub 4% unemployment, and that the market interest rate is as low as it is. And that is telling you that a large number of people are very comfortable buying and holding government uh, debt. And in that context, one has to think about Um, deficit targets differently than one would have thought about them traditionally. Just as if you were helping your child buy a house, your concept of how big a house they could buy, how expensive a house they could buy with a given income, is different in today's low interest rate world than it was in some previous era when mortgage rates were 8 or 9%. That same thinking applies to the government. Was it the right time for this tax cut... Of course not. Are there things that need to be addressed with respect to uh, the long-term government budget? Yes, but last thought. If you ask what's America's biggest problem in this sense, you cannot run a great nation on a shoestring. We have traditionally taxed 19% of GDP. We are headed into a period with more aged people, with greater national security threats, with more higher priced healthcare and education and other fundamental public services than they've had in the past. And we are trying to run a government on less than we ever have in the past. And that is the fundamental problem, not the timing of how we pay for it with respect to deficits.
2: Wow.
0: Larry Summers is a professor and President Emeritus at Harvard. He also runs a Center for Business and Government at Harvard's Kennedy School. Jillian Tett was Tokyo bureau chief and reported in Russia and Brussels before she became US Managing Editor of the Financial Times. They spoke on June 29th in Aspen, Colorado make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.